It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. Today's topic is something that is very, very close to home for me because of a lot of specific health issues and challenges that I've been experiencing for many, many years, probably more years than I'd like to admit. And today's guest, I'm super excited to dig into. Whitney and I have Dr. Kate Steiner here on the podcast today. And we were talking prior to the podcast. I feel like sometimes the pre-podcast banter is always so wonderful because we get to know a little more intimate details about each other and each other's lives and our pets and our struggles. And so prior to, I, I had all these questions that were just coming up for me. And I, I was thinking to myself, I got to wait till we start recording. Don't don't blow the whole thing before we hit the record button. So I've been holding back, Kate, but I just want to jump right into the deep end, fling the floaties off, no inner tube, like let's just go in the deep end with this. I was digging into a lot of your work around the topic of burnout and reading a little bit about your book and your work, I felt like my neck was going to snap off because I was just nodding as I was reading through your website and some of your content. And the thing that, that I'm really curious about, I feel that the word burnout is something that is being shared on social media so frequently much like the word authenticity or vulnerability, it seems that burnout has become a word that is occupying an echelon where it seems like most everyone I see who is an entrepreneur or a person in the work field or anyone who's struggling during the last, you know, I don't even know how long this pandemic has been going on anymore. <laughs> but burnout is a word that comes up a lot. And I've used it a lot because I often feel like a crispy piece of toast that's been forgotten in the back of the toaster oven. Like, oh, sh uh, crap, I forgot about that piece of sourdough, and now it's like a piece of ash. I really wanted that piece of sourdough, damn it. But I'm curious, Kate, about what your definition of the word burnout is. Are people accurately using it? Is it being overused? There's a lot of questions. And if we do feel like a crispy piece of ashy sourdough in the back of the toaster oven, how do we actually diagnose burnout for ourselves? I know that's a lot of questions into one. I said we're going in the deep end. But tell us about your perception of burnout and are people misusing this word when it might actually be something else they're experiencing? Yeah, I love that. So thanks so much for that. Yeah. And I love the expression and I use the expression feeling crispy. So definitely relate to that piece of the burnt toast. I think that's a really good imagery for feeling crispy. So when it, when it comes to burnout and, and how I define that, what I would say is that most people, when they are referring to what they're experiencing and feeling right now, especially through the pandemic, what they're really talking about are what I call burn events. So these are situations and in times in our life where we feel stressed, overwhelmed, fatigued, emotionally drained, but they're not necessarily burnout. So burnout is that time where you like 
almost as though that that time where you don't want to get out of bed, you feel as though the work you're doing is a burden. It doesn't bring you any joy when it used to. It's beyond overwhelming. It's beyond draining, those kinds of things. And so burnout is often kind of the culmination of lots of burn events together. And so I would say that Right now we're, you know, we're a year into this pandemic. So if you have been experiencing a year's worth of burn events, yeah, you probably are experiencing burnout right now because that severe emotional drain, fatigue, and I think the piece of feeling as though the work is a burden is a big piece to that. So if you feel burdened by your work or you feel disconnected from your your passion or the purpose that your work used to give you, that those are really some of the key indicators I think for determining if you are experiencing full-on burnout or if it's a burn event that you can recover from a little more quickly. I feel like everything you just described and I know Whitney will probably shake her head as my business partner and best friend that you almost said, Kate, verbatim of what I have been talking about for a, a long time. This idea that the things that I used to do, that I used to feel filled up my tank, a sense of joyfulness, a sense of purpose, echoing everything you said and feeling really sad about it, of this idea of wanting to be responsible and show up for my life, show up for our podcast, show up for our business, show up for my girlfriend, show up for my family. And and realizing that so many people I love in my life are also feeling this way. And one of the most difficult things has been for me of finding the will to show up each day for the responsibilities of life, even feeling exactly what you described to a T. Like, and my question has been, how do I show up for life feeling this way? And how do I support other people that I love in my life who are also feeling that? When I'm that drained, when I'm that crispy, when I'm that depleted of joy and purpose and, and focus in my life, it's been a real challenge to, to get through my days. And one of the most difficult feelings has been at the end of the day, you know, checking off the proverbial boxes, right? Yeah, we, we, you know, sent out the newsletter, did the podcast, did the guesting thing, you know, coached this client, whatever it is, but laying down in bed and feeling like I don't feel good about what I've been doing, like I'm doing it. And so I suppose my, my question is, how do we operate when we, when we feel we're burnt out or if any of the listeners are resonating with what you described, how do we dance with this? Because I'm at a loss right now to find my way out of this place and find joy again. I feel like I'm kind of like in this robot mode of doing the things, but not feeling any fulfillment from them. Yeah, absolutely. I th you know, I think there are so many people right now that are experiencing that exact same thing. Certainly, you know, the folks that I've been working with and those kinds of things. So, so part of it is kind of determining what if anything is leading you to feel kind of specifically burned out or overwhelmed or drained throughout the day. So are there certain things that when you finish them, you're like, oh, I just feel really drained from this. So that would be an identifiable burn event that you might be able to prepare for differently or recover from differently. So if you know that it's going, if a meeting or something or, or sending, getting the newsletter to send out in that aspect, if you're like, this is going to drain me, Find ways to take care of yourself immediately after that. So what are some ways that you can re-energize yourself immediately after that moment? So some of the recovery things that I like to incorporate into my day include play. 
I think it's really, really important that we play as adults and we forget about this, right? So we do it as kids all the time. We have all of this creativity and we just have fun or we sing silly songs. And so however you incorporate that into your life and that can kind of bring back some of that sense of joy. So for me, it's just about being silly. So I, as I had told you before the show, I have a dog and a cat. I sing really, really stupid songs to them really, really stupid songs to them. Like it's it's not unheard of for me to just be in my house being like, catechist, catechist, biggest fluffy cat, catechist, catechist, fluffy, fluffy cat. And he looks at me like I am insane. He's like, this woman is off her fucking rocker, but I laugh and enjoy it. Same thing with my dog, Amber. Amber Bamber gets all of these fun songs. I sing to her when I give her her meal or her food. We sing about food. So I think that that's an important way. So how like simple steps throughout your day is like, okay, what can I do that's playful? Can, you know, if I'm having a tough moment, should I have an impromptu dance party? And if I put on, you know, my go-to energy music, is that going to amp me up a little bit? Thinking about what your self-care rituals look like throughout the day, these don't have to be long practices. They don't have to take, you know, several hours throughout the day or even as long as 15 minutes. It's, you know, how are you spending the two minutes while you're brushing your teeth? Can you, you know, run some gratitude practice, you know, in your mind in that aspect? Can you have a post-it note on your mirror that you read over that just kind of reminds you in that moment that you're going to, you know, it's going to be okay and that you have some wins in your life and not everything has to be so overbearing. I just want to thank you for singing that song because my next follow-up question was going to be requesting that you give us an example of the animal songs and the fact that you just volunteered it up, Kate, like we're friends. It's, it's like done deal because I also make insane songs about my animals. And Whitney has been requesting for years that I record an album and also get on TikTok sharing my animal songs. So I feel like this is probably yet another sign I need to do that because I have a whole treasure trove of these songs that I have on my voice memos on my iPhone. Like ye- going back years, I have like an album's worth of animal songs. So I'm, gl- I'm glad you have that too. And now the catechist, catechist, catechist is just going to be in my head the rest of the day. So thank you for, and, and also it's as a, a really sign, good one, it's a great one. And my question is, is your cat's name catechist? His, his name is actually Catechus. That I feel like if I were ever to have a firstborn child, I would have to name them Catechus. Atticus? No, no, no. Atticus, but with a cat in the front of the name. Yes. That's genius. Yes. Genius. <laughs> yeah. I love that you gave us some really quick, actionable tips on play because... You know, I feel like oftentimes the the conversation of wellness or self-care can can feel oftentimes kind of serious. And, you know, we need to take these supplements and get the biomat and get the far infrared sauna and do the colonics. And you're just like, no, why don't you dance and play and sing to your animals? I, I just love how simple and easy and actionable that is. And I think it, you know, it it leads me to a question, too, of of. You know, I think there's the point of realizing that you're burnt out. Right. And perhaps some steps to take that I would love to get into of how do we handle from a psychological and biological level when we're burnt out. But before we get to that, what if you're not necessarily in full burnout yet, but you have a sense that you're headed there? Because there are times where I certainly have talked to friends or I've had a perception 
of I'm not in burnout yet, but I sense if I, if I push that final domino, I'm going to get there. So if one is feeling like they're headed or, or like, okay, I'm in the car and I'm headed for the cliff. I'm not there yet. What can people do to, and is it possible to avoid it before you even get there? Yeah, absolutely. So, so kind of the piece when it comes to avoidance. So I think as humans, we experience these burn events all the time, right? And so these kind of those lower level pieces of feeling kind of that fatigue, overwhelm, those kinds of things. So those aren't necessarily avoidable. However, I do think that the full on feeling of burnout can be prevented and that's through recovery practices. So when you start to feel yourself going down that road, implementing recovery practices, and these look a little bit different for every person. So spending some time self-reflecting on what it is that you need for your quote formal, you know, recovery formula. So for me, that includes things like I know that I need um, a body of water is really important for my recovery. Nature being out in sunlight is super important for my recovery. So that will look different as the seasons look different. So if it's the summertime, I can go and do paddle boarding or something like that. If it's in the winter, I have to figure that out in some other way. But does that look like? I think it's also really important that people keep what I call a comfort list. And so these are things that bring you comfort at any point in time. So Again, if you think about yourself as a child, you had someone there to comfort you when you were overwhelmed or upset or scared. We have to find ways to comfort ourselves when we're overwhelmed and stressed or feeling upset. And so having that comfort list of things that immediately bring comfort to you. So for me, it's mac and cheese, a cozy sweater, the Hallmark channel. So Hallmark movies, I like that they're super predictable and I know it's going to happen and I feel good at the end of them. So what are those things that you can implement like as easy as turning on the TV or as easy as making your favorite meal that is going to bring you comfort in that moment? So reflecting on what you need for recovery and then enacting those things are, is really what's going to bring you back to that space of peace so you, you don't experience burnout. I'm kind of mentally reviewing my comfort list as you say that, Kate, and also, though, acknowledging that because of the stress and anxiety and unpredictability of the world, right, over the past year plus, I find myself at times pressing those some of those comfort touchstones for myself, but overindulging. And in the podcast, we have talked a lot about food addiction. We've talked a lot about my struggles with sugar addiction. Whitney's talked about some of her disordered eating. We've talked a lot about the significance of of food, specifically comfort food, because you did bring up mac and cheese. We're both huge fans of mac and cheese, by the way. Love it. For me, my thing is like chocolate. You know, if I feel uncertain, insecure, sad, depressed, etc., I tend to go to sweet things. So you know, I suppose my my question is, is when we know we have these comfort touchstones or our comfort list, how do we <laughs> self-regulate so that we don't perhaps overindulge in those touchstones of comfort? And I'm asking, asking for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> no, I totally feel you on that, especially with the sweets. I have the I have a very intense like sugar, like sweet tooth. So and I'm a baker. So those two things combined 
don't always work out so well as far as trying not to overindulge. But I think such an important point and question you bring up in that, in that you use them for comfort, but you don't want to overindulge in them, certainly, because something that can be effective in relieving stress can then also become damaging when you overindulge in it. So for me, it's incorporating, whether it be a mindful practice or a grounding practice while I am eating those things. So if I'm going to enjoy like the mac and cheese or a cupcake or something to that effect, one, I portion it out. So I have like the serving of it, right? So it's not like I've gone, like I've made the entire pot of mac and cheese and I'm like, here we go. Digging in now. This is good. So portioning it out and then really kind of sitting with that and just kind of using kind of the mindful eating technique. So smelling the mac and cheese, just kind of observing the mac and cheese, placing a bite in my mouth and just kind of holding it there in my mouth and considering, you know, what does this taste like? And then trying to describe in my mind, what does this taste like? What, what, how would I describe this to someone who has never had macaroni and cheese before or to myself if I've never tasted this before? you know, does it taste salty? Can I taste the different varieties of cheese that might be in this kind of considering that? And then just kind of taking a deep breath and trying to just slow down your eating process. I think chocolate is really good to do this with too, because you can allow it to kind of melt in your mouth and kind of, you know, identify the flavors as it melts in your mouth and how it tastes differently and what the texture is like as it melts and those kinds of things. So really anything that you can do to really kind of just like slow your anxiety or your heart rate down while you are enjoying these things are going to help you not only keep you from overindulging, but also just help you enjoy it in the moment more. That's really helpful. And I think about that a lot too, because having that awareness around food, which is so comforting, or this could be this could be a lot of things, right? I mean, I love this comfort list and I too was going through in my head like what that might be for me. And I think that's incredibly important because it, I like to be prepared. <laughs> and I, I like to be prepared because when I come up against something that's challenging, I like to have the tools that I can go to to kind of reduce the discomfort for a period, right? As much as I can. And that's I'd probably like a coping mechanism of mine of like, okay, if I can just be prepared for something that it won't be too uncomfortable or too painful or whatever, I can get through it faster. That in itself, though, can actually cause me to feel a lot of anxiety because it's like constantly trying to anticipate any potential challenges. But that's another story. I think that the comfortless side of it speaks to me because when like there's certain things that are predictable for me as a as a woman having a uter- or a person having a uterus which is a better way to say it is that every month I know I'm going to experience some discomfort and my body is going to want certain things so I've started creating routines and actually planning out on my calendar okay this is the time of year that I'm going through a certain stage of my cycle and so I'm going to probably want this this and that and so I set up different things for that period of my life for the for the comfort. And I think routines like that are really helpful, whether it's one time a month, a few times a year, or every day, no matter what's going on in your life. And I like to sprinkle things around so they're accessible. I'm a huge fan of essential oils, for example. In fact, I 
put on some rose essential oil about an hour ago and it has this lingering comfort effect that is like mind-blowing to me. I mean, I'm constantly amazed by the power of scent, right? And then I have supplements and stuff around. So actually on my desk, part of my comfort list is I have some of our favorite products from this brand called Relly's. And I love these for two reasons is that not only can I ingest them in my body, but the words on them are huge too. So seeing just this word joy, if anyone's watching on um, our YouTube channel, I am showing it. Just seeing the word joy reminds me to have that joy, right? And so I love this idea of that because it's like I, I put things around visually. I have things that I can ingest. I can have things that I can smell. I can have textures. I like to have things like rocks or crystals around. And it's just as you're saying that it's reminding me how much I've kind of set that up in my life and how helpful that is. But going back to Jason's food point, that is like another level of it because I think for many of us, perhaps a cultural conditioning that we might have had is that like we tend to eat food so quickly that we don't even really know why we're eating it. And to your point, Kate, that it's sometimes we we really want ice cream, but then we don't even know when to stop. And it's like we're maybe one bite of ice cream would have been comforting enough, but we end up eating a bowl of it, a cup of it, a pint of it. And then we step back and think like, did I even need that? And we start to associate ice cream with something bad when really just like maybe we overdid it. And that reminds me of your point a lot, Jason. Oh, and we do get to see your dog now. Another reason to watch the YouTube channel. (laughs) And Amber has made her appearance. (laughs) Does this mean we get a song? (laughs) This feels like a good time for a song break, Kate. A really good song. Amber, Amber, what you doing? Amber, you pretty girl, aren't you? You're the prettiest girl in the whole wide world. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. She's definitely looking at me like I'm a crazy person. This also reminds me of something I just saw, Kate and Jason, before we recorded. I was watching TikTok. That is part of my comfort list, by the way, Kate. When I feel a little burnt out, That's my cue to not do anything, but my version of not doing anything is usually laying on the bed or a couch and watching TikTok videos. And I try to give myself some boundaries and I'll check in after like 15 minutes and say, do I actually need to keep watching this? Usually the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is yes. But I saw a really great video earlier today during one of my burnout breaks, which was about how important it is for us to embrace what we might consider as cringe was the term that this girl is using. She's, we are so hard on ourselves when it comes to how we show up online, especially. And I think about this all the time because I can be really tough on myself about my appearance. And I wonder like, oh, like do other people perceive me as unattractive or attractive, you know? And this video is really helpful because it reminded me that we have a zero control over what people perceive of us and b whatever cringe means something different to everybody but cringe actually even if it is kind of the same the people that like you don't mind that cringe and the people that don't like you are never going to like your cringe or your be- what you think is your best part so you might as well just be 
however you want. And if you perceive that as being cringy, honestly, like someone like me doesn't care. Like I like your songs, Kate. That doesn't make me cringe, but there might be a listener who's cringing right now and we don't have control over that. They're probably not a good fit for our show if they're cringing at you singing a song about your animals because, you know, Jason and I love it. And I've noticed this actually in the feedback that we've had from this show and a lot of the content that we've done is like people love all the weird shit that we do and people don't mind that we swear on the show and, and that it's marked as explicit and they don't mind like all this like little nuances of who we are because that is who we are. And I think it's so interesting that we've been kind of conditioned to hide those thing, those parts of ourselves when really, and this kind of ties into burnout, I think it's exhausting to try to pretend that you're something that you're not. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was thinking about this earlier today where it feels completely exhausting for me to constantly be trying to to make myself a person that I think other people will like. And I was reflecting on this specifically around how I've been feeling a little self-conscious about my appearance and we're making all these YouTube videos. And I was like, oh, I never like the way I look in our YouTube videos. I'm, I'm always, I feel fine when we're recording, but I watch them back and that's when I cringe over myself. And I was thinking about that today and I thought it doesn't matter First of all, this is a podcast. It's meant to be audio, but we wanted to add a video element of it. And second of all, the people that care about me and that like me either are fine with the way that I look or maybe they like the way I look. And the people that don't like me or the, or the people that don't even know me and are going to judge me based on the way that I look in a video are probably not my target audience. So they shouldn't really matter. And with that mentality... I feel less burnt out because I'm not trying as hard to please everybody. And I'm not trying so hard to be something other than what I'm, you know, what I am. Oh, I think, gosh, so much there, right? But I think the piece that I really connected with when you were talking about that, Whitney, is that that piece of letting go of other people's opinions of us, right? And so I think one of the best pieces of, of advice that I got is that other people's opinions of me are none of my business. I don't even need to know them. And I think, you know, for me, something, something beautiful happened when I turned 40. I'm 42 now. And when I entered into my 40s, I just, I really stopped caring about other people's opinions of me. And it just, it opened up like this beautiful space of just being able to be myself in most spaces. Now, that's not to say that I don't get self-conscious because human being self-consciousness happens and those kinds of things. And I certainly think about my appearance and those kinds of things, but I stopped trying so hard. So one of the things that I have always done throughout my life is dance in grocery stores. If it's a good song, I'm dancing. That's all there is to it. But I used to be way more self-conscious about it. And I would only do it when the aisle was empty. And if someone came into the aisle, I would stop dancing and be like, I'm just getting this can of beans or something else here. Don't mind me. It's fine. But now when they come into the aisle or I almost intentionally go into aisles where people are and then dance around them just to see their reaction or to get them to smile and whatnot. So, or to try to embarrass my partner, but he's never embarrassed by it. So he's basically like, yeah, you're fun and crazy. So that's fine. But I just, he's like, this is daily bullshit for me. Let's, 
and just kind of looks at other people like, yep, that's, that's the one I chose. I chose her. So, but I think there's that, that beauty in letting go that you talked about. And that does help with like with the burnout, because when you let go of that trying so hard or trying to, you know, fit the box and just allowing yourself to be yourself, it's so freeing. All of that energy that you put into being the other person is now freed up for you to do other things. Yes. And I wonder if that's the reason that so many people feel burnt out. Because to Jason's point that he brought up at the very beginning, I notice people using the word burnout constantly these days. And and sometimes it's like that concept of when someone tells you not to think of a red car and next time you go outside, all you see are red cars. Like, I wonder, am I just paying so close attention to the word burnout that I notice it all the time? Regardless, I've been tuning into trying to figure out like what exactly is causing this? Like, why are people talking about burnout more frequently or why am I noticing it? And I feel like a lot of that is coming from younger generations, meaning people between like probably 18 to 40, right? So younger is always relative. When I would say skewing a little bit towards the early 20s, but certainly millennials, I think, are really struggling with this right now. And generations, is it Z? Is it the, that's underneath a millennial? I always forget. Yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so Gen Z yeah, and millennials. Gen Z is the behind millennials. So yeah, they're right. the ones who tell us that don't, they know we're old if I have a side part and I can't, apparently I can't wear skinny jeans anymore either. So I try it. Which? Get, it, get them off my body. Give it a whirl. I don't like, what do you want me to wear? It drives me nuts. And you know, it's so funny, Kate, is I just had my first haircut since COVID started in the US. So it's been almost exactly a year since I got my haircut. And I specifically went in and I was like, I'm going to have a, my middle part. You know, when they ask me, I want my hair. In the, I've actually always done my hair in the middle, but then I started kind of like just, I don't know why, some habit of, of putting it to a side part. You know, I, that's how I would just run my hands through my hair. And and then, of course, thanks to TikTok, I started feeling self-conscious about it. <laughs> but the funniest thing was, is my hairstylist, who's like a really accomplished hairstylist, who's been doing hair for 20 years. She works in this nice salon in Los Angeles. You'd think she really knows styles. She <laughs> recommended that I part do my hair with a side part. And I was like, no, no, please. Anything but that. I can't. I can't. But it was very amusing because then I also thought it just doesn't matter. And oh my gosh, I love skinny jeans. So please, like, I would rather look completely old to somebody and feel comfortable and confident. And that leads me back to my point, Kate, which was like, I wonder to, to actually this, this kind of answers my question because it's interesting how younger generations, and, and maybe it was the same when, when we were in our twenties and all that, which was that we are so fixated on how we look and how others look. And it's exhausting. It's so exhausting. So it's so contradictory to me too, because Gen Z also kind of prides themselves on being cringe comfortably and like doing whatever they want. And like, they kind of position themselves as being less judgmental. And yet they're the ones telling anyone that's not Gen Z that, that they're too old if they're wearing their hair or their clothes a certain way. 
So no wonder they're burnt out if they're constantly fixated on what's cool and what's attractive and all of this. And maybe that's part of the answer to just care a lot less. But perhaps you don't really get to that point in your life until a certain age, you know? Yeah, I, I work with a lot of, I work on a college campus, so work with a lot of, you know, younger college age students and, and whatnot. And I do, I think developmentally, it's just really hard to be there. I think I know in my in my 20s, I cared, I cared so much about what other people thought of me or what I, not what they thought of me, what I thought they thought of me, which is actually different, right? So we put that assumption on other people when we are in that age group or, or really at any point in time, it's not actually, it's probably not what they actually think of us. It's what we perceive them and their reactions and how we react to what their, you know, our experiences of them. So we think we know what they think of us, but we're probably just really making it up in our head. But as I said, like, I really, I don't know if it was just kind of an age thing or just aging out of it, or just, you know, just finally no longer giving a shit that something happened that I was able to let that go. But I know for sure that if someone had come up to 20 year old Kate and said, you really should just let that go. And the opinions of others are really none of your business. I would have told them to fuck off. Regardless of age though, it would seem to me that one of the causes potentially of burnout is the rampant consumerism and comparison and pressure to keep up regardless of age. It's like, you need to have the right designer clothes as an offshoot of what you brought up, Whitney and Kate, what you echoed about, you know, wearing your hair a certain way, wearing the right, the right pants, quote, quote, unquote, you know, we have fast fashion. We have this pressure to drive an automobile that looks impressive, that reflects who we are, or to live in a particular zip code or upgrade our house, or we're in kind of this consumerist upgrade culture that first of all is not only wreaking havoc on the environment and I think our our general mental wellness of always feeling like we have to keep up and more, better, different, new, that mantra that we particularly ring the bell, not just in the US, but I think in any, quote, developed first world country is more, better, new, different. And if you're behind and, you know, you're sort of like this old tech and, you know, you don't want a smartphone and you don't want the latest car and you don't really care about getting, you know, the McMansion or whatever it is. There's a million examples. I think part of what we're talking about, again, not just in a millennial or Gen Z age group, but across the board is this constant and unyielding pressure from corporations, advertising, media, social media to fit in and be accepted by society. And how do you do that? Well, you have this thing and that thing and do this and be this and look like this. And I think at the root level, that is so damaging psychologically to us because we're always feeling like we're never enough. We've got to keep up and have the latest and greatest thing. And if you don't, you're not going to be loved and accepted. And this is something that I'm raging against in my own life of not wanting to succumb to this upgrade culture to feel like I'm a better person because of what I have. Yeah. Oh, think as you were saying that, I'm just thinking about, you know, how marketing has really taken advantage of our human need to belong 
and how damaging that has become for us as human beings, because as they, because now they framed it that, you know, in that piece of, oh, to belong, you have to have this iPhone, you have to have this thing, you have to have, you know, you have to look this way, you know, you have to have this many followers on your social media and those kinds of things. And so all of that, you know, it really does just, it is really hard to not allow that to kind of creep into your psyche. And I think even harder sometimes to recognize that that's maybe what you're like the experience or the feeling that you have, that it's probably tied to that in that sense of belonging and that miss that misguidance of what, what it means to belong instead of just feeling like the comfort of being around other people or the love and support of, you know, you know, your closest circle, your family, your friends, your partner, those kinds of things. And thinking that it's these external pieces that are going to bring you that sense of belonging when really it's, it's just, it's more those, those relationships that, that are the important piece to that. How do we start to break that spell though? Because it's such a rampant a seemingly all-consuming aspect of being a human being in, I don't know, the modern world, whatever even that means. And it's almost like there is a certain amount of ridicule that comes from it. You know, as an example, my mom, Susan, has like a, a Nokia phone that probably looks like it came from, you know, the year 2002, right? And my mom doesn't text. My mom doesn't really care about social media. And some of her friends, even in her age group, are like, well, what do you mean you don't have an iPhone? Well, you're using this old Nokia phone, you know, and my mom, I don't want to talk my mom, my mom's age, that wouldn't be kind. I don't have her permission to do that. But, you know, it, it just seems that there's this judgment and ridicule that come from people when they observe you are not, it's almost like, well, who is the, God, who coined this term? I might have to Google it. Tyranny of the majority was this term that was used I think there was a sociologist who called it tyranny of the majority of this thing of you have this large segment of people. And if you're the outsider, if you're the rebel, if you are the contrarian, then you are subject to a higher level of scrutiny and ridicule because you're the outlier and woe be unto you if you're the outlier. But I think it's necessary if your soul feels like being rebellious or being an outlier. I think that there's a really critical place for those type of human beings in our society. Because the, the pressure to conform is so massive. And so I'm, I'm curious, you know, Kate, but also Whitney, if you have thoughts, knowing there's this pressure to conform, knowing there's this, quote, tyranny of the majority, how do we build the will and practice believing in who we are enough to say, cool, I see what you're trying to do. Doesn't, I, don't want, I don't want any piece of that. Even if it means I'm going to be ridiculed, even if it means the tribe won't accept me. That's, that takes a lot of courage. And so how do, how do we cultivate that in the face of all of this pressure? Yeah. So one of the things that I like to ask myself, and by the way, my mother's name is also Susan. So I just think that that's a fun little commonality we have. She does text, but she uses emojis wrong. So I just, I love and appreciate her, but she should probably watch this and be like, Kate, come on. But one of the things that I like, you know, that I try to ask myself when I get into 
almost kind of like that doomsday cycle of thinking. And when you, when you start to feel yourself kind of go down that, that, that cycle of, well, if I do this, if I go out of the norm, then this will happen, then this will happen and people won't like me and people will ridicule me and those kinds of things. It's just, is stopping myself and asking, do I know that for a fact, without a doubt, 100% truth? that that is what's going to happen or for an actual fact that that's going to be the outcome? And the answer is always no, because I don't. I mean, one, I don't have a crystal ball, so I can't predict the future or anything to that effect. But I also can't predict how people truly are going to act. And so that does help me at least stop that cycle of thinking And I think that that's the place that we get more in trouble in that place than when we are actually in the place of we've taken the stand. Because once you've taken the stand and you're like, this is where I'm at, generally, you know, other people's opinions, if they say something to you, if there's ridicule, it's going to sting because human beings and and that's an emotional thing. And it's, it, it doesn't feel good to hear those things, but it's probably not going to stop you from doing what you're doing because you're already there and you're finding at least some confidence in that or some success in that. But it's the space of when we stop ourselves before getting there because we're worried about the outcome before it actually happens. We have a term for that here. We call it disaster baiting. Yeah. And I think it's it's absolutely true. And, and the question you posed, Kate, reminds me a lot of the work of Byron Katie of like, is this true? Can we absolutely know that that thought is true? And what is a thought that is truer than that thought? Like it's, it's very similar to that structure. And I think it's important because the mind is very convincing. The mind will try to protect us at all costs. Don't go in that dark cave. Don't say that thing. Don't take that risk because you might die. And I feel like our mind is doing that on a pretty frequent basis. So to your point, to question our thoughts, as my French bulldog is trying to ram down the door, I predicted this before we started the podcast, by the way, as an aside, that Bella would try and literally ram her tiny rhinoceros body through this friggin' door. And she is, she doesn't know. We had an agreement 90 minutes and she's doing it at 45. Bad dog. So if I let her in, all hell is going to break loose. So we're just going to have to have the rhino. The rhino is at the door, y'all. The rhino is at the door. Shifting gears, Kate, really, really quickly. On your website, there was one particular sentence that really kind of just smacked me in the forehead, like a, like just, just al dente linguini, just whap right in the forehead. And the sentence said, I believe that you cannot avoid burnout. And I read that sentence and my eyebrow went up like the rock. And I was like, what do you mean, Dr. Steiner? So would you please unpack what you mean by that, that you believe that people can't avoid burnout? What is that? What does that mean? Go, go deeper into that, please. Yeah, absolutely. I love that you asked that question. So for me, I think that we have been approaching burnout completely wrong. And in that we think that, that we can completely avoid it when I actually believe that it's part of our human experience. And, and so when I mean, what I mean by that is more so in the experiencing of these, these burn events that I had talked about. So these smaller scale pieces of feeling overwhelmed, stress, fatigued, 
emotionally drained, those kinds of things. You can't avoid those. Those happen all of the time. They're things that we can expect that, you know, weird meeting, you know, a meeting with a colleague that you just don't enjoy meeting with, a tough meeting with your supervisor, an uncomfortable family gathering. These are all things that kind of create stress in our life and overwhelm and fatigue and those kinds of things. We can't necessarily avoid those emotions. But I think that society and previous studies have set us up for some failure when it comes to how we approach burnout by saying that we can completely avoid it. So the idea that if I have my wellness plan in place and I have the greatest work environment ever, that I can completely avoid these feelings is a misnomer in my mind because it can still happen because you may still have unexpected things come up that cause you stress and fatigue and overwhelm. And if you don't recover from those things, they're going to compound upon each other and cause you burnout. And you could have the most perfect supervisor ever who gives you all the wellness days in the world, but you might still have other things going on. You might need some recovery help and those kinds of things. So for me, burnout was something that... I was ignoring because I thought, well, I have this great wellness plan. I'm taking dance classes and I'm eating really well. And I was really only, you know, thinking about the physical wellness. But in my head, I was like, this can't be burnout because I'm doing all of the things I'm supposed to be doing. I'm even seeing a counselor. This shouldn't be burnout because I'm doing all the things I need to do to avoid it. And when I realized that I was burnt out, I felt this overwhelming sense of, of failure that I couldn't keep it at bay by just implementing wellness practices. And that's what I mean by we can't approach it from an avoidance place because we have to constantly kind of work at identifying it for ourselves, preparing for it, and implementing recovery from it, as opposed to saying, well, I'm just going to keep it over here in this box And if I keep my wellness plan going and all of these other things going, then there's no way burnout is going to impact me. That's such an important thing to bring up because one thing I've been really trying to be more mindful of is how for years I just thought I could optimize my way out of uncomfortable feelings and I could optimize my way to being the best person and the best version of ourselves. And now, similar to what I was saying before, how I'm really sensitive when I hear the word burnout and I I feel like I hear it all the time. I'm also very triggered when I hear people talking about optimization and and personal development and become your best self and become better. It's all about better, better, better. And I understand, I believe, at least from my perception and viewpoint, I can relate to the desire to do that. We work, Jason and I, and I think all three of us actually with our work, it's in the health and wellness space. It's about your well-being. It's about self-care. We have such an obsession with that culturally, though. And that's, you know, perfectionism is a huge part of our our culture as well. And I think that's also very linked to burnout and part of the reason that we feel it. Hustle culture, this addiction to efficiency and productivity, it's like, if only I could do one more thing and that's going to make me this much better. And it's like, we're always computing in our heads. And that to me is another reason why we have burnout is like this constant desire to never stop improving. It's never enough. 
And I think that's another reason why not enoughness is huge. That is one of the biggest things that Jason and I have found through doing this podcast and creating courses and doing personal coaching. It, it's oftentimes that people do not feel good enough. They always want more. And like you were saying, Kate, about marketing, having plugged it in our heads that we need to have this all the time. We need to have the right look. We need to have the right followers. We need to have the right things. It's always about right or wrong, good or bad. You know, we have to have more money. This comes up constantly on this show. And Jason and I, I think part of the reason we bring it up so much is because we're trying to get away from that because it's no longer serving us. It's exhausting. It's so exhausting to always be playing this keeping up with the Joneses or right now it's keeping up with the Kardashians, you know? And it's interesting too, when you think about the name of that show, like that show is, is based on keeping up with the Joneses. And when it was created, it was like, oh, another reality show. But when you think about the impact that the Kardashians have had on our society, it's actually quite frightening because they represent all the money. So everybody wants to be as successful as any one of them, any of the Kardashians. Oh, if I can just follow in their footsteps, I can be successful like them too. And then we've got them always looking hyper perfect, not to mention oftentimes photoshopped, but the amount of work that those women in particular have done on their bodies and their appearances and convinced us through marketing that we could achieve it too if we just buy the products that they use, which is completely not true. If you don't have the money and the access that they have, their resources, like it's virtually impossible to look like them, not to mention most of them use editing tools for their photos and videos. But they have conditioned us to always believe that we're not good enough. And that show has actually gotten so deep in our psyche culturally that no wonder the burnout is happening there because everybody's trying to grab something that isn't actually possible. I want to jump in really quickly and say something about the language part of that, Whitney, that you brought up of them titling it, keeping up with just the energetics of that language, the idea of keep up. It reminds me of a race. It reminds me of being in a track race. Someone's ahead of you and you have to keep up with them. And the other thing it reminds me of, too, is some of the brand names of not just the logos and the subconscious impressions that marketing has with the logo types, but with the names. Like, think about Chase Bank. Chase. So subconsciously, what am I? I'm chasing money all the time. I'm chasing wealth. I'm chasing status. I mean, I'm not going to say that that was an intentional choice, but why would you name Chase Bank? Like, that's very on the nose to me. So to your point, Whitney, and, and it could have and, been a last name. That is, I mean, Chase is a last name. Well, it was originally J.P. Morgan Bank, and then they changed it to J.P. Morgan Chase. So J.P. Morgan, as we know, was one of the robber barons of a century ago, who was also one of the first billionaires, along with Rockefeller. But I just think, to your point, Whitney, keeping up with the Kardashians, Chase Bank, like there's a lot of these encoded words that we don't think about consciously, but what they represent is very fascinating. Yeah, I think one of the things that I came to mind while you were talking about kind of the the good enough, am I enough, being enough kind of piece is that 
you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in, in practicing gratitude. And I think it's an incredibly important part. It's a, an important part of my own self-care and those kinds of things. But it, you know, it, I also consider, you know, that peace and the damage of like false positivity and the idea that you shouldn't experience negative emotions and trying to avoid any, you know, any type of negative emotions and those kind of things like, oh, we'll just look for the bright and, you know, look in the bright side or look at the silver lining and those kind of things. And for me, gratitude is sometimes gratitude is sitting with a feeling of sadness or hurt and being grateful that I'm having that experience or learning from that experience, but not trying to brush it aside. And so I think that that's an important piece too, when we think about that whole kind of piece of avoidance in that, well, let's just avoid anything that brings us discomfort or makes us uncomfortable because we don't want to sit in that space when really the most growth is going to come from being in that space. Now, you know why we named our podcast, (laughs) this might get uncomfortable. (laughs) You know, it's actually interesting, similar to the word burnout, I hear that phrase about discomfort all the time now. And I th- it must be because I'm thinking about my show, but it feels like it increased in popularity, that, that concept of growth being outside of our comfort zone. And it's exciting because I feel like more people are open to that now, which is probably on the positive side of this. If we look at, well, these are the downsides of where we're at, but the, the upside is that we're much more aware, it seems, of when we're feeling anxious, we're feeling depressed, we're not being authentic, we're burnt out. So even though they're all major issues right now, the awareness that it's brought to people to actually think about it and reflect on getting outside of their comfort zones, for example, is is really wonderful. The sad thing, though, is statistically, mental well-being is, is a really big issue right now. I mean... The suicide rate alone, especially in certain age ranges, is really intense whenever I I read about that. You know, recently we talked about this documentary called Childhood 2.0, and I've been really trying to be more aware of what's going on for kids these days. And I think that's part of why your work is so important, Kate. It's not just for us as adults because we're fully developed human beings. Sure, we have a a lot more to learn. We probably will always be learning throughout our life. And we have more perspective. And for kids, many of us remember what it's like to be a, a kid, but we don't know exactly what it's like for them now because technology's changed so much and the culture has changed. And now we have the pandemic and like, the world has changed in some really significant ways. And I think it's important for all of us, regardless of if we have kids in our lives, to be aware of what's going on because, yeah, we need to put on the oxygen mask first, but then we need to think about well, what's going on for other people. And the same thing is true. In fact, right now, I've, I've made it a really big part of my day every day to learn more about what's going on for children and learn more about what's going on for non-white people, anybody of color. And also, Jason and I are trying to learn more about, you know, people that identify as different genders and just really trying to think of like, what's going on for other people out there, especially for those of us that are white. 
I think we need to use our privilege in a way to stay extra aware and support other people and not just assume that we're what we're going through is what other people are experiencing or that we can even relate to them, you know? So this this concept around how children are suffering so much because of things like technology. We can't just assume, oh, it's the same for them as it was for us. Like, I remember the, being 10 years old. No, like so much has changed in just a few years. And I think also stepping outside of ourselves and recognizing that what our experiences are for our gender or our race or our, our privileges, just like I was saying with the Kardashians, you know, we have to remember that not everybody has access to the same resources, and I want to be more inclusive in our talks about well-being. And so I think your work, Kate, is so important for all these different people that are struggling in many different ways, because um, I actually would love to know what you found. Like, are you, are you learning different about different experiences of burnout? And maybe you can share some of that, too, like in your research or your work. What are the differences that you find in people's lives and how they experience burnout and how it affects them differently than others? Yeah, I love that. So one of the things that I've definitely kind of found in in research and talking with folks is that one, like like so many things, emotions, experiences, burnout is really, it is an individual experience. And so it looks a little, well, we can kind of have some, some of those tenets of like feeling of burden, feeling of no longer having joy and those kinds of things, but how that manifests in a person's life looks very different from person to person. And I think when, you know, when you are thinking about, you know, humans of different identities and those kind of things. I really think that you have to take into consideration what, you know, generational trauma has there been as well. And that's something that's going to impact their feelings of burnout or stress or anxiety and those kinds of things, because that's not something that you can just remove. That's something that is, is very inherent in their, in their human existence in, in those kinds of things. So I think that that's an important thing to keep in mind and helping people kind of define, you know, they may not know where the stress is coming from. And it could be that it's really just that generational trauma that is leading them to feel that anxiety and those kinds of things. They may not have ever identified it as that. So keeping that in mind and just, you know, I'm a big believer in in coaching and those kinds of things. And in my training as a counselor, that it is very person-centered. And so it's very much about the person's experience and hearing their narrative and then rephrasing and using their words to help them identify what their emotional experience is, where they might be coming from is so, so important. I was thinking about what you're talking about with, you know, with kiddos and whatnot. And I think everyone is really suffering from, you know, a lack of social well-being right now in that we are just with, with isolation, just being, forced upon us and forced upon us for a really long time as humans, we have just, we're really struggling and, and our young ones are definitely struggling with kind of this, this social aspect and that they're not getting the connections that they need to be socially well. Kate, I want to ask you a question to go back to joy and the concept of joy, because when you were talking about the list of the pleasures or, or as I refer to them in my own life, these touchstones, 
I noticed that this book that you have called Burnout, A Guide for Every Professional to Identify, Prepare, and Recover Your Joy. When I read that, again, one of the other moments of like, how do I recover my joy? Oh my God. You know, it, it really struck a chord in me on such a resonant and deep level of, I have no idea how to do that. And I've been sitting in a place of feeling like I've really been struggling to find joy in my life. And I'm sure that a lot of our listeners probably resonate with this idea too of, oh my God, how, how do I recover joy in my life? So how do we, to create an image in my own mind, create a bridge, I suppose, of burnout and finding our way to recovering our joyfulness? Because that, that to me feels like such a critical piece for our collective and individual mental health, especially in a post-pandemic world. So how do we do that from, from a perspective of maybe some techniques or, or practices that you might recommend? Where do we even begin to recover our joy? Yeah. So I think going back to the concept of play is almost always the place that I go back to, to kind of find a sense of joy in those kinds of things. It's, I think it's the easiest thing to do because it, it brings us back to that sense of childhood and, you know, children are joyful. Generally, children are joyful. Sometimes they can also be, you know, kids. But I'm thinking of my nephews right now. And sometimes I'm just kind of like, you're joyful, but you're also pissing me off. So I think that that's an important piece. But I think starting with that, that playfulness and kind of incorporating small, that small pieces into your life, making yourself laugh. So if you just start laughing, even if it's a fake laugh, it doesn't take very long until you're actually laughing for real. And we could actually try it right now. So if we all just started laughing. I think it was maybe 10 seconds for me and I was laughing for real <laughs> and I'm still laughing, but I'm definitely, then I can't stop smiling. And then I realized I have a very quiet laugh compared to you two, <laughs> but I wonder how many listeners started to laugh because sometimes it's like awkward when you hear other people laughing and you don't want to laugh. But I, I love that Kate, because, um, I actually came across this on Clubhouse. There's a couple on there. I can't remember their names, but they would go into rooms and they would do laughing break sessions. And the two of them would have everybody on Clubhouse unmute and just start laughing. And I thought it was such a sweet therapeutic thing. So thank you for doing that. Yeah. So, and I think, you know, when Jason, when you asked about like, what is the bridge? It's those small steps, right? And we, one, we have to take that step back and think about, okay, what is one thing that I can do today that will help me feel joyful? And maybe it is, you know, sharing some gratitude first thing in the morning or ending your day with what were my wins for the day? And it could be as simple as I made the bed today. And just remembering to honor that space and that it doesn't have to be something gigantic or huge, getting there is about the small steps to get there. And when we think about kind of change, I really think about it as almost kind of a, you know, a spiral going up. Or if you think about like a, what is it? The Zinkley, 
Oh, a slinky. The thing that would slinky. Yes, slinky. Oh my gosh. Oh, I, I love that we're like both doing this. The like, thing that we, all three of us are like stairs. stairs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do kids still play with slinkies? I don't know, but they should. They different generations. They are, they, that's fun. Just get yourself a slinky. But call it the right thing. But when you kind of pull that up and how it kind of spirals up on it. So if you think about change in terms of a spiral or something to that effect, or it kind of loops like this, right? So when we are going through change, it will loop up and you'll find that you have kind of like a high point. And then as we kind of continue to progress, you might dip down a little bit. But even this low point is still well above where you started, so reminding ourselves of that is really, really important because you didn't slip all the way back down. You're still making progress, but really think of it in what's the small thing I can do today to bring me joy. Is it, you know, sing the silly song to, to my cat? Is it watching the TikTok video? Is it, you know, listing out my wins at the end of the day? Is it honoring some gratitude and including myself in that gratitude at the beginning of the day? Is it being playful? Is it laughing with my partner? Is it watching a feel-good movie? Whatever, it's the tiniest thing. And then giving yourself kind of a pat on the back for experiencing joy that day. And then maybe the next day, there are two things that you can do to bring yourself joy. And then maybe the next day it's three things that bring you joy. And then at some point you may just be in the habit of when you start to experiencing kind of that, the more icky feelings and not trying to get out of them, but knowing that around the corner is a joyful moment. I think the thing that, that comes up for me, Kate is over the course of the pandemic, I have gone to different of these touchstones or these things that that I think in the past brought me joy. But part of the horror has been doing things that I used to feel joyful about. And when I do them now, I don't feel joyful. And that's been almost like a panic feeling in my body of, oh my God, like um, picking up the guitar and, and, and playing music doesn't make me feel joyful and made me feel joyful for years or or you know, spending time with my animals. There's been a lot of moments for me of realizing that things that were once touchstones of joy have not been bringing me joy. And so it's almost like th if I'm experiencing this or perhaps the listener or someone who's like, oh, those things, quote, don't work for me anymore. It's almost like we have to be radically experimental in trying new things then if these touchstones that worked for us in the past that used to bring us joy don't anymore. And I've realized that I've been at that point a lot over the past year plus. It's been like, oh crap, what do I do now? Because this thing hasn't been lifting me up the way it used to. Chocolate still does, thank God. Yeah, that's and that's tough, right? That realization. And I think we all experience that as humans in that, it, you know, it's like, well, this habit or this thing that has always worked for me before isn't working right now. And oh my God, what do I do in this experience? And, but I think you, you know, you really hit it on the head there with that experiment 
and try something else and see if there might be something else that, you know, can bring you that sense. And I, I think sometimes just getting, you know, trying something new, you know, it brings up kind of that sensation of like, oh, I'm kind of nervous or I'm not sure I'm going to be good at this or something to that effect. I've been doing a lot of like live fitness classes and whatnot. And so one of the things that I keep trying is they're fascinating because they can actually see you and give you um, corrections and whatnot. And so one, I really love to hear my name when they're like, Hey, your, your form looks great or whatever it is. So that's, that always is a feel good, but I like to try new and different classes just to almost kind of put myself in that space of feeling a little uncomfortable because by the end of it, I feel really accomplished just for trying it. That takes so much of the pressure off too. what you just said where we don't have to show up and be perfect. We don't have to nail it on the first try. And I think this also is, it's super important, Kate, because going back to sort of the cultural programming that, that I observe in talking to, again, friends and, and clients and being on social media, there is a mentality of having to be, people think they have to be great from the jump. And there are prodigies and there are people that, you know, I mean, we can bring up throughout history, but for the most part, if you talk to any great, I don't even know, entrepreneur, musician, athlete, painter, teacher, coach, they kind of, a lot of them admit they sucked in the beginning, you know, and, and it took a long time for them to be like, oh, I actually have a level of dexterity with the instrument or my craft or whatever it is. And it takes a while to have, I think, a vision in your head of where you want to get to. But years of trial and error, experimentation and experience, closing the gap between sort of where you think you want to be or where your heroes are and then finally getting there. But one thing I think with social media and, and the speed of culture right now is people expecting that they have to be great from the jump. And then they end up giving up on a thing because they're not great from the jump. And also, perhaps, they haven't built the resilience or the patience to put in the work to get to where they want to be, and they get discouraged. I see a lot of young people being extremely discouraged, not just young people, people at any age, of like, oh, I tried it and I sucked. It's like, well, of course you sucked. You just started. Like, uh, give yourself permission to suck. And I don't mean that in, a, in a, a derogatory way. Like, give yourself permission to fuck up. Give yourself permission to take the pressure of perfection off. And, like, be okay with sucking. Like, let's embrace sucking for a while. I think that's so critical. That's at least my philosophy is, like, I'm going to do this and I'm probably going to suck for a while. But if I love it and I'm curious and I'm passionate about it, then let's embrace the suckage. Let's embrace being bad at it for a while. Really? Like, I want people to do that. Yeah, I love that. Embrace the suck. I think it it reminds me of the expression, you know, don't compare your chapter one to someone's chapter 20, right? So that that piece of like, if, if you're writing your introduction, don't compare it to someone's finale because they're going to look completely different. You're in a different space in your book and that's okay. That's that's part of like the beauty of the journey and those kinds of things. And I think, yeah, embracing the uncomfortable kind of learning, you know, sucky portions is some of is, is almost can be the most fun part if you let it be. I also love on this point when sometimes artists will release 
their early works, whether it, that's a band or a musician who have their early demo tapes that never got released. And I love music and I love singing and playing music, although often it hasn't been bringing me joy, but it's still there. It's still hanging out. But one thing that I love is with some artists, and that can be authors too, releasing their earliest work that never saw the light of day. And it's always so wonderful to see the origin and the seed of some of perhaps the most celebrated people in our culture and to look at where they started and, and have those things come out and go, oh, yes, you can see the arc of where they started now, which again, often took sometimes decades for them to get to a point of what we know them as now. And I think that that we need to do that. We need to go back and sometimes trace back the people we hold in high regard and see what their origins were and say, oh yeah, they didn't come out of the gate being this... You know, you can feel the passion and the spirit and the rawness and the verve, but it was a, in often cases a very unpolished stone. The, the the coal hadn't turned into a diamond yet, and so we can't just celebrate the diamonds. We've got to celebrate the coal too. So, with that, Kate, I want to direct our listeners to dive even deeper into your work. We mentioned your incredible book, Burnout, that I'm going to literally order this evening as soon as we wrap this podcast because I want to just chomp all into that book. So for you, dear listener, we will have a link to Kate's book, Burnout, also her company and her website, Lift Wellness Consulting. All of that will be in the show notes at our website, which is wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. We'll have all of Kate's social media handles, any way you want to stalk her and follow up and perhaps even work with her. Because if you are experiencing burnout, she has obviously a wealth of knowledge and, and tools and wisdom to share with you. So again, you can go to our website, click on the podcast section at wellevator.com. It will take you to the transcript for this episode with all of her links and all of the ways to follow up with her. And I do mean it, Kate. Like I, I feel like this has been so perfectly timed for me, having these feelings that I have felt and not knowing really where to go. And so I'm just really excited to dive even deeper into your book and your work so I can get new perspectives and tools so I can find my way back to some joy. But I think where I am going to start is singing to animals is keep singing to animals like that, that I feel like I have just like lost that a little bit and I haven't been singing to them. And so you've given me so many great joyful reminders throughout this episode. It's been really, really wonderful having you here. Well, I am just so appreciative to both of you and for spending some space and time with you today. So this has been a lot of fun for me. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.